Steve, a question for you. So if you live in a manufactured home community and you bought the manufactured home, are you an owner or a renter? Wow, Corey, that is a good one. I think you own the home, but you rent the land that it sits on. Mm, so what happens if you fall behind on your rent? You know, what happens if you have to move suddenly? What happens if something goes wrong? Welcome to the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. And today we're going to look into what protections tenants in manufactured home communities have if things go wrong, or even if they just want to move, and how tenant protections are included in state laws or community leases. To help us tell the story, we are joined by Kathy Zelenok, partner at the law firm Dickinson Wright and an expert on the manufactured housing industry and the laws related to it. We spent a lot of time last year studying how states view tenant protections in manufactured housing communities, you know, with Kathy's help, and how those views align with the new duty to serve regulation. And we published a paper on the topic as part of our Spotlight on Underserved Markets series. We'll spend some time with the authors of that paper, Garvin Lee, Carol Khalil, and Agnes Kucharski, to better understand their research. But first, our conversation with Kathy Zelenok. Kathy, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Happy to be here. So, Kathy, um, we relied on you a lot in helping us understand the laws around the country regarding tenant protections in manufactured home communities. So 50 states, 50 different views on tenant protections, and now we layer on top of that the specific duty-to-serve protections. So let's begin at the beginning. Right? So how did you start this work? You know, did you go in alphabetical order to pick the first state, roll 50-sided <laughs> die? Like, What was it? Well, we knew from our background, um, our firm has represented a lot of lenders in manufactured housing, several lenders that specialized in manufactured housing for a number of years, and we've also represented community holders across the country. So we knew that certain states were going to be fairly intensive with respect to this type of regulation and activity because typically the um, states that have a lot of manufactured housing have a lot of regulation of that housing type. And so um, we did uh, concentrate on some of the states that had the most regulation initially and then sort of fanned out to some of the states that we suspected would have lesser protections um, and, uh, you know, were able to kind of extrapolate from there and start to take a look at it. It also helped us shape, when looking at the duty to serve um, issues, it helped us shape our um, research a little bit and some of our assumptions as we looked at those more heavily regulated states and then thought about uh, what they were doing and how that fit with the duty to serve in terms of taking a look at uh, some of the things. Because while the duty to serve regulation um, was intended to be very clear, there are certain things where we had to sort of take a look at and shape some of our assumptions. So um, that's how we got started. That sounds reasonable. Was there Were there other resources or research available to you, or was this completely from scratch? Uh, no, we were able to make use of a couple of uh, different resources. Um, there's uh, been a AARP study of manufactured housing and regulation, and it touched upon some of the duty to serve issues, though sometimes in a slightly different way. It still gave us a little bit of a jump start. And then certainly the Manufactured Housing Institute has a number of resources that were helpful in terms of pointing us in the right direction or helping us validate 
findings that we had made initially. So both of those resources were very helpful. Hmm. So, you know, I, I recall in, in looking through a lot of the work that, that you did, and you just mentioned some of the ambiguity in, in uh, the uh, duty to serve itself. So you had to make some judgment calls on what counts and what doesn't, what lines up and, and what doesn't. So can you give us an example or two and maybe talk us through how you thought about those? Sure. I mean, for example, um, we the the duty to serve regulation calls for a lease to be renewable, but the term renewable isn't defined in the final regulations. So we had to kind of do some interpretation and some thought. And so what we wanted to do is we, we assumed that the term renewable should be interpreted in a manner favoring the tenant's ability to renew the rental agreement or lease, even if that renewal required giving notice or doing something else, um, and even if the renewal period was shorter than the original lease term. But those are all, you know, important qualifications that could have been, you know, perhaps summarized better in the regulation or, or something could have been done to make it a little bit clearer because the ability to renew a lease or the right to renew a lease um, on a month-to-month basis, for example, when you've had a year-to-year term previously, I'm not sure how meaningful that is, but it's we had to draw a line somewhere, and so we, you know, tried to create some assumptions with respect to what might have been intended. Um, similarly, I'd say that, you know, the right to sell a home without relocation is tricky because um, a lot of statutes are very silent on that point, and so does a person have an actual right, or was the regulation intended only if there's an affirmative right uh, versus um, the ability to sell the home as it sits, at least for some period of time, or the right to sell? Um, and the other thing is, is the right to post for sale signs. That one was a really tricky one, too, because, again, there's a difference between um, a statutory silence and how you interpret it. Does that mean that we sort of presume that somebody has the right to post a for sale sign absent a regulation to the contrary? Or do we assume that only an affirmative right is supposed to be counted for the duty to serve? Um, another point that we noted is that sometimes it's hard to discern exactly what favors a tenant or these, you know, the duty to serve stuff is designed to be protective of consumers and tenants. Um, but Sometimes it's difficult to interpret um, when those things are protective. For example, the requirement of a one-year lease term or a minimum one-year lease term, you know, in some very protective states, that lease term wasn't required because those states appeared from their legislative history to believe that a one-year lease would cut against um, tenants who were most in need of affordable housing. So, for example, it would be more advantageous to permit a landlord to offer a month-to-month lease, and that would be more tenant-protective to give them the flexibility and not have to qualify from a credit perspective for a full one-year lease term. So, you know, that's a long answer, but it's it's really – there was a lot of nuance to um, taking a look at these regulations and really understanding in all 50 states how they applied. And, of course – the state statutes were implemented and the state regulations were implemented prior to the duty to serve regulations. So there was very little um, overlap in terms of language or intention. And I suspect that some states will also start to look at the duty to serve and, and perhaps make some changes accordingly. So, so Kathy, there, there was one point that, that you touched on with the one-year renewable lease and, and uh, some states viewing a shorter uh, renewal as favorable. So that you know, got me thinking now, and also when we started to look at this in detail, 
is it possible then to implement a duty to serve protection voluntarily on a community and find yourself in conflict with the law of the state? Yeah, I think there are instances where that um, would be possible. Um, and uh, in, so, in some, for example, in some instances, um, the duty to serve, you know, wants you to have some attribute where um, that would be in conflict or inconsistent, at least, with um, what a state has to offer. Um, and I think there's there's probably several instances of that, but the one-year lease term is one that's um, interesting. I think also uh, grace periods, because in certain states, grace periods vary a little bit from the duty to serve, and so the question becomes, you know, what do you do with that? I think in most instances you can offer a, a greater protection than what a state statute does, but not necessarily um, a lesser one. So there will be some issues, I think, sorting out in terms of that. And, and again... Um, state legislatures, in many instances, um, are articulating that they are intending to protect the tenant. And so where they're in con- the state regulation is in conflict with the duty to serve, I think it's going to be a very interesting question um, as we move forward to discern what is actually more protective of the working families that are intended to be protected by um, both statutes, if you will. Yeah, that's really interesting how you got to look at all these different nuances and then bring it back to the, the household and how, how it's going to affect them. I also found when I reviewed the, the results that there are states that have a lot of regulations and not much MHCs or a lot of MHCs and not much regulation or, you know, different variations of that. Do, yeah. Do, how, uh, how does that kind of thing happen? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting. Well, I think it, it, it comes in part out of each state's approach to the landlord-tenant relationship. And further, in the manufactured housing space, um, you know, that gets extended a little bit. So in some states, there's a very vigorous um, state legislature and protection with respect to um, tenants and landlords and the relationship between them. And that does translate over into the manufactured housing realm in that the states that are more proactive about landlord-tenant relationships tend to be more proactive about their manufactured housing regulation. And then we've also talked about the correlation between the number of manufactured homes and uh, or communities and the regulation. But there are some states where it's absolutely inverted, and I think that that may arise at times out of um, a sense that manufactured housing is a type of housing that has in the historically sprung up at the edges of municipalities and um, has sort of been at times unregulated for a period of time and then become regulated. And I think in some instances state legislatures have responded by implementing a uniform statutory measure across the state where in the past it would have been more of an issue of zoning or left to a local municipality. And so I think some states have sort of reacted and created more. Um, regulation. I think the other thing that's unique to the manufactured housing space is that um, the concept of whether there be a lease or a license from a legal perspective has also governed uh, the regulation of the manufactured housing communities because I think uh, it was difficult at times for people to see manufactured housing as being truly a landlord-tenant type relationship given how the homes are sited and the way the communities are operated. And it's sort of evolved over time. And I think, again, state legislators have reacted to that, in some cases pretty vigorously with a lot of regulation, 
even if they only have a few manufactured housing communities um, within their state. So are there cases that, that you can think of where it went from zero to 60? You know, maybe there was a state that didn't have a lot or, or anything, and then you know, something happened, and then, then there was a sort of legislative push to put these protections in place or put some protections in place? Yeah, I think we see that, for example, in, in a number of the states with coastal communities. Um, certainly Florida is one of the states that has the most vigorous um, regulation of manufactured housing with um, very fairly strict rights with respect to sale of the community and planned closure of a manufactured housing community. And um, I think that's in reaction to historic events where um, a number of uh, folks living in manufactured housing communities were rapidly disenfranchised as, say, a hotel or a resort wanted to take over the piece of property. And so the late state legislature there put in some provisions to permit um, advance notice to manufactured housing community residents and opportunities to form homeowners associations in order to protect their housing and permit them to continue to live in their manufactured home uh, community um, while still permitting the property owner to make a successful sale if that's what they were hoping to do. Um, it gives all the parties a little bit more bargaining power at the table, and I think clearly, especially in coastal communities in Florida in particular, that's very evident in the way they regulate. Well, so that's, that's interesting how so much about the community and the individual landlord-tenant relationship is dependent upon factors that are not really in their control, you know, other other things going on in the state, other business practices. Uh, were there any surprises as you looked at at, uh, at the protections and duty to serve, as you looked at all of the state laws in detail? Anything really stand out to you? Um, I think in terms of um, surprises, I was a little bit surprised at um, the grace period for rent payments. I, I was surprised that that was not more frequently very, very clear, that tenants have a right to make a payment you know, on a, on a slightly late basis and still not lose their rights or be disenfranchised. We had kind of expected that that would be available across the board, because certainly in um, other types of landlord-tenant, it tends to be um, somewhat available. So I think that that was something that we kind of went back and double-checked our answer a couple times in terms of scouring the provisions. but. Um, a number of states provided protections that were fewer than three days, and a lot of states just simply didn't have affirmative protection um, for late rent payments. And so that definitely um, surprised us. Um, I think that the other one that sort of surprised us is that we had not done as much work in some states where there was um, a, uh, an advance notice of planned closure or sale of the manufactured housing community, because that was a little bit more of a prevalent regulation that I had anticipated. We were familiar with, you know, as I say, for example, Florida, that has a very nice right in that regard, and we also were aware that Maine had good protections in that regard, but we hadn't necessarily come across um, all the states that offered some protection uh, for the tenants with respect to those issues. And, and that was one in the regulation where it was a, a two-for-one special, uh, whereas where it was a, a right, uh, where, where it was tied to uh, closure or sale. Uh, but it seemed that the states had, had views uh, that may have differed under those uh, two scenarios. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. There was a lot of nuance to that in terms of what rights they might have. And the other thing is is that some states went so far, and Florida, as I say, they, there's a right, too, that goes further than the um, duty to serve protections and permits a uh, duly formed homeowners association to make a competing bid on a sale. Um, that's really interesting and unusual, and I think um, – you know, it, not every homeowners association would be able to avail themselves of that opportunity, but I think in some instances it would be a very valuable right to a tenant. So, what about communities where, you know, not all of the uh, tenants own their homes? Where some own the homes, some don't. Yeah, I mean that's a really interesting question too, because it, it creates a lot of different. Um, issues and conflicts. And so, for example, when we talk about um, relocation and or um, sale of the home and things along those lines, it sort of presumes that many of these tenants own their homes. And in a lot of instances, they don't own their homes or, importantly, don't own their home outright. That is, they finance the purchase of the home. And that creates further complications for uh, both the community owner as well as the homeowner in uh, that situation, and I think that the duty to serve regulations made, um, in certain instances, an assumption about how uh, manufactured housing um, is, is owned and operated, and um, I think there will be a lot more nuance in the regulations, too, as we make distinctions between um, communities where there are homes owned by the tenants and communities where the underlying community owner owns the actual homes in the community. That's a really great point, and, uh, and I think everything that you've shared with us today has been so interesting and adds color to the, to the, um, to the report that we've had that, that was put together with so much of your help. Um, in, anything else that you would highlight uh, from, from uh, your analysis and your work on this that, that we didn't talk about today? Uh, I'm not sure that there's uh, too much more to highlight. I think that this is a space that is so exciting and is going to continue to evolve. And so to me, the most um, interesting thing about it is to see how this uh, moves forward. When you've been involved, as we have in manufactured housing for 20-some, 25 years in a pretty specific way, we've seen evolution and we've seen a lot of protections come in um, and changes to the quality of manufactured housing communities um, over time and the consumer protections that are being implemented. But uh, sometimes it's just, you know, one step forward and then a step back and then a step sideways and then two steps forward. It's a little sporadic, and I think it'll be very interesting to see how this evolves over the next several years um, to benefit manufactured housing uh, community uh, occupants as well as community owners. Yeah, great points. And uh, we definitely feel privileged to be able to walk through you in this process of taking the steps in many different directions, front and back and sideways. And we hope to be a part of uh, many of those forward steps as we look forward uh, in, into what the industry will do and what we can do at Freddie Mac and in our work together with you. So thanks again for being and here with us and joining us today. It's been uh, fantastic, and I know our podcast listeners will really get a ton of value out of this one. Thanks so much for inviting me to discuss these issues with you and look forward to the next time. We're joined now by Garvin Lee, Carol Khalil, and Agnes Kucharski, authors of the paper Tenant Protections in Manufactured Housing Communities. Garvin, I know there's a lot in the paper, but in a nutshell, how would you uh, describe it? Yeah, sure. So I'll be pretty high level in this overview, uh, but essentially what we did is we focused on the prevalence of a specific set of tenant protections 
that had previously been identified by the Federal Housing Finance Agency, otherwise known as FHFA, uh, and they described this in the duty to serve regulation. Uh, so we were really trying to understand the presence uh, of a market for MHCs that have these protections in place. And to achieve this, we completed a review of state laws across all 50 states, uh, trying to determine which protections were covered under state law. And then we also reached out to a handful of MHC owner operators to better understand how these protections might impact their businesses and the rest of the market as a whole. So through this research effort, we were hoping to not only lay a foundation for a broader market understanding of MHCs and tenant protections, but to look more closely at how Freddie Mac might be able to support this market. Uh, and that's something that we'll continue to do throughout 2019. Sounds good. And, uh, and Carol, before we get into more detail, maybe you can cover um, some of what the protections are. Sure. Uh, FHFA identified eight specific protections, all of which have to be in place for a property to be eligible for duty to serve credit. And these protections are, the first is a one-year renewable lease term, unless there's a good cause for non-renewal. Two is a 30-day written notice of any rent increases. Three is a five-day grace period for rent payments and the right to cure defaults on rent payments. Four is the right to sell the manufactured home without first having to relocate it out of the community. Five is the right to sell the home in place within a reasonable time period after eviction by the manufactured housing community owner. Six is the right to sublease or assign the pad site lease for the unexpired term to the new buyer of the tenant's manufactured home without any unreasonable restraint. Seven is the right to post for sale signs, and eight is the right to receive at least 60 days notice of a planned sale or closure of the community. So, Carol, a little backstory. How did this particular set of protections come about? That's a good question. So FHFA originally proposed the duty to serve regulation back in 2010, and they got comments on that proposal, but the efforts stalled as the agency was focused on the financial crisis. They reproposed the regulation in late 2015, and in that proposal, they noted that business practices in manufactured housing communities vary widely, but that the structure of the housing, where a community owner owns the land and the tenant owns the home, creates a unique power dynamic. FHFA heard from advocates that once a home is placed on the land, it's extremely costly to move, which puts the tenant who's renting that land at a disadvantage in the relationship. They heard stories of owners sharply raising rents or unexpectedly canceling leases. And FHFA believed that the enterprises were uniquely positioned to use their market influence to support pad lease protections becoming more of an industry norm. So the agency proposed a series of minimum protections, and after receiving comments through the notice and comment process, they ultimately landed on the ones we just described, and that was the focus of our paper. So had, had any work been done before on how prevalent these protections are in the market already? Yeah. So there were a few studies that looked at some protections generally. One was done by the AARP back in 2004, and one by the NCLC in 2010. But nothing recent that looked specifically at this combination. And also, those papers were focused on advocacy, and we wanted ours to just be research-focused. Right. So there wasn't really a whole lot to build off of then. Uh, so where did we start on this paper? We started by hiring the experts. <laughs> we knew this was going to be a challenging lift. The tenant protections FHFA list seemed clear-cut, but law almost never is. And we knew someone was going to have to look at the interplay between the various legal frameworks. We've got states that may have specific laws governing manufactured housing communities, but they may not. And their general landlord-tenant laws would have to be examined as well. There's also the potential federal law implications when you talk about things like organizing or posting signage. 
Not surprisingly, we don't have the expertise in-house, so we looked outside. Um, during the duty to serve rule proposal, we'd commissioned Dickinson Wright, a law firm, and specifically hired Kathy Zelenok, who's a partner there, and her team to look at the state of tenant protection laws in the top 11 states where Freddie purchases manufactured housing community loans. They did excellent work, so we asked them to expand it to all 50 states. With such a new combination, I can't imagine that they were widespread. Garvin, how many states had all the protections? Yeah, you're exactly right, Steve. So these were certainly not widespread. Uh, we actually found that no state included all eight tenant protections. Uh, but a key point for us was not just looking at all or nothing scenarios. Uh, we wanted to study what states were already doing and how much alignment there currently was or what gaps needed to be filled. So even though no state had all of the duty to serve protections, we did find that 12 of the states had at least half of the protections. And Washington state actually had seven of eight. Uh, the only one that they weren't they were missing was the right to sell a home within a reasonable period after eviction. Okay. What were the, what were the most common protections? So we found there to be three most common protections, uh, the first being right to secure default on rent payments, which had 82% of states uh, instituting that protection. Then 64% of states had a 30-day notice of rent increases, and 58% of the states included the right to sell a home without relocation. After that, the percentages get much smaller. Okay. And um, if no state has all of them, I guess that begs the question of how we get credit for duty to serve. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and since many states don't institute these, this set of tenant protections, the only way for property or a loan to qualify would be for the community owner to include the duty to serve protections in their leases. Uh, and this would help bridge the gap between existing state laws. All right. So, uh, so it sounds like voluntary at the community level. Um, so what do community owners think of these protections? Agnes, do you, do you have experience with that? Uh, yeah, that's right. So we, um, as part of this process, we spoke to four community owners at different um, sizes with national, regional, and state-specific footprints. And we asked them for their thoughts on each of the protections and how, how they could be implemented. And what we found is that four of the protections stood out as being particularly challenging or even unworkable. Starting from the least problematic, they were the one-year renewable lease term unless there's good cause for non-renewal, right to sublease the home without unreasonable restraint, right to sell the manufactured home in place within a reasonable time period after eviction by the manufactured housing community owner, and lastly, right to receive at least 60 days notice of planned sale of the MHC. Okay, so I think it'd be interesting to learn more about the individual concerns. So maybe we can take them one at a time, starting with the one-year renewable lease, unless there's good cause for non-renewal. Sure. So when discussing this one, we received varied results um, that really depended on the investment strategy of the owner. So for long-term owners, the protection was fine and we didn't really find any resistance. But for the short-term owners, um, those owners planning on holding the community only for three to four years, they worried about losing flexibility, flexibility that they need to make necessary improvements quickly to add value to the property and then resell it. Okay. And, and what have we seen in our time in the market? So based on our own experience um, doing the program since 2014, we find that it's actually a common practice to offer a one-year lease in the first year followed by a month-to-month -month lease thereafter. And even with that arrangement, we find that residents tend to live in MHCs for an average of eight years, uh, even when the leases are month-to-month. -month. 
Okay, moving on to the next one. So the, the right to sublease or assign pad lease without unreasonable restraint. What do we hear on that? So when discussing the first part of this protection, um, the right to sublease, we heard that owners are reluctant. Uh, they worry about having individuals who are not on the lease residing in the community because in their view, a sublessee is never going to be quite as invested as a homeowner in terms of maintaining the home that they live in or the community as a whole. But if the potential tenants um, or sublessees were uh, required and willing to pass the same screening processes as all other residents of the community and also sign an agreement with the property, then the owners would actually be open to considering um, to allowing and adding this protection within the lease. Um, as, far as, as part of the second part of uh, the protection, assigning the pad lease without unreasonable restraint, Owners generally did not have an issue with it, so long as the buyer of the manufactured home is qualified to live within the community. Okay, so it seems like with the first two categories, there are ways that owners can get comfortable. Uh, do you find that's the case with the right to sell manufactured housing uh, in place within a reasonable time period following eviction? So this one is more complicated. Um, the owners we spoke to identified this protection as problematic because of how expensive and time-consuming the eviction process already is. Depending on the state, it could take from a few months up to nine months. And so because of this, owners are reluctant to extend the timeline even further. And given the difficult nature of the eviction process, um, owners do not begin the proceedings without being sure that the eviction is going to stand. In the end, um, during our discussions, some owners just could not get comfortable with allowing any extra time, and others said that they would actually consider allowing an evicted tenant 30 additional days to sell their home post-eviction. Uh, but this, of course, was predicated on how difficult the eviction process already is within a specific state, because their concern, of course, is that for every day that the pad site is occupied by a home that's not actually paying rent, the owner is losing money, which might then end up affecting their ability to cover debt service. Okay. And were there protections that you heard were an especially strong reaction to? So there's one more protection which we heard was problematic for everybody that we surveyed, and that is the right to receive at least 60 days notice of planned sale or closure of the manufactured housing community. So this protection, again, has two parts. The second part of the protection, giving notice prior to community closure, was not a problem. In fact, all owners were supportive of this measure. But the first part of the protection, um, requiring at least 60 days notice of a planned sale, that was found to be a problem among everybody we talked to. And pretty much everyone said that they were opposed to it and they would really only implement it if it was already law. And what was their particular concern with that one? So the concern lies in the fact that selling a community is already a very delicate and complicated process with many moving parts, and giving such a notice could adversely impact the sale and essentially upset this delicate balance. Uh, purchase and sale agreements often include clauses that occupancy and overall operations have to remain consistent throughout the sale process or the sale might fall through. Um, and so a notice um, of sale could upset this. It could cause anxiety among community staff, which could then snowball into employees resigning and the community operations suffering as a result, as well as the rule enforcement. Um, and if the sale actually did fall through, the community might be left worse off with fewer staff to oversee the management 
and potentially an owner that is actually now cash strapped because they weren't able to sell the community in the first place and so unable to then properly maintain it going forward. So from an owner's perspective, this is really a lose-lose scenario. Hmm. So Agnes, thanks a lot for laying all that out for us. And you know, clearly there's a lot in there with, with many implications. Um, but I'd like to go back to the protection regarding a reasonable amount of time to sell a home post-eviction. Because I recall there was some ambiguity around this in our analysis. And so Garvin and Carroll, did any of the states cover this uh, after eviction idea in their laws? Yeah, so this one was a little hard to determine uh, due to the nuances that exist for each protection, but more specifically for this one in particular. Um, but to answer your question, the overwhelming majority did not. Uh, there are some states that were flagged as maybe having this protection, but we actually found that 84% of states did not institute the protection and about 16% were on the fence for qualifying. But this basically means that we put them as a maybe in our, in our analysis. Yeah, as Garvin said, most states were silent on this particular protection. And the states that did have a time frame, we flagged as a maybe because there's such a wide variance in the amount of time given. So it's not clear what would be considered reasonable. For example, Vermont and Massachusetts each give three months, which is at the high end, so likely would be considered reasonable. But then you've got Virginia, Minnesota, and Michigan giving somewhere between 60 and 90 days. Utah's got 15 days. Georgia's got 10 days. And maybe we could make an argument that all of these are reasonable, as the state legislatures presumably gave thought to the time frame and made an affirmative decision that each frame time frame was appropriate for that particular state. But we really just don't know for sure how the regulator would view these. So if, if uh, owners were to get comfortable with these protections, you know, did they share some thoughts on how they might uh, best implement them on their properties? So Agnes, what did you hear from them? Yes, yeah, so we asked them how much time would be required for them to implement these tenant protections by updating the leases within their communities. And all four respondents agreed that updating all leases at once would be very time consuming and essentially an administrative burden. Um, ideally, they preferred to do it at least turns. But some owners also noted that one year might might be sufficient time to implement the changes, um, although that would be dependent on the community size. So, you know, one year would probably suffice for an average size community of 200 pads, but then you have some communities that are much smaller, closer to 100 or 50 pads, so maybe a whole year wouldn't be necessary. And then you have those really large parks, as large as a 1,000 pad sites. So, you know, in those cases, we would probably... Um, maybe need to look at a longer time frame. Agnes, Garvin, and Carol, you shared a lot of great insight today into the state of the MHC market. So thanks so much for, for joining us today and coming on the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you're interested in more, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe to us on iTunes and SoundCloud.